Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast, the dun 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 under pressure edition. That certainly describes Andy Dalton's night against the Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday, and it also describes how the Bengals are feeling with an 0-4 record. Coming up, you'll hear radio replays, locker room comments, and Dave Lapham will join me for analysis. Plus, in this week's Fun Facts conversation, we'll meet the person under the pads as I'll talk to Bengals tight end and soccer fanatic, C.J. Uzama. All of that is straight ahead, but first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since the Telestrator. One of the highlights of my week is seeing Lap use the Telestrator to break down the Bengals' next opponent in his Lap's Look segment on Bengals.com. It's always informative, and normally I just stand there nodding and soaking it all in, but this week, they handed me my own stylus. I get to doodle as well. My contribution is likely to be very limited, but it's fun to have that Telestrator pen in my hand for the first time. Now let's get to football. If you are a regular listener of this podcast, you know that the normal routine after each game is to provide a detailed recap with all the highlights and then comments from the players explaining exactly what happened. There's really no need to do that after Monday's 27-3 loss to the Steelers. It can be summed up in this montage of Andy Dalton getting sacked over and over again. On second down and five, play action fake, Dalton in trouble. He is sacked back at the 50-yard line. Dalton waits for a shotgun snap, stops the right foot, catches the football, gets hit from behind, the ball pops out, and the Steelers recover at the 29-yard line. Man. Dalton back to throw again, and he will be sacked. Back at the 28-yard line, and that might be the last grasp for Cincinnati here in the first half. Yeah, they met at the quarterback that time. Second down and 10 from the 25-yard line. Dalton back to throw again. He's under pressure. He's in trouble, and he is sacked back at the 13-yard line. Right now, it is not a fair fight. Dalton takes the snap, fakes a handoff, and gets sacked by Watt back at the 45-yard line. Dalton will be sacked again back at the 31-yard line. Javon Hargrave applying the heat. And it's just a case of all four guys meeting at the quarterback. They're just teeing off. Dalton back to pass again. He gets smashed from behind and loses the football. Oh, he's hurt. Fourth down and 10. Dalton back to throw. And he is hit and sacked, and that is appropriate. Alu Alu. Sacking Andy Dalton on the Bengals' last offensive play of the game. Andy Dalton was sacked a career high eight times. The Bengals' team record for most sacks allowed is 10. It was Pittsburgh's ninth straight win over Cincinnati, going back to the game in 2015 where Andy Dalton broke his thumb tackling Stephon Tuitt after an interception. Prior to that play, here's what the Bengals had done in the regular season with Dalton at quarterback. They had gone 9-7, 10-6, 11-5, 10-5-1, and were 10-2 and and the number one seed in the playoff race at the time of his injury. Add that all up and you get 50 wins, 25 losses, and one tie, among the best records in the NFL during that time period. But since then, 
The Bengals are 21, 34, and 1. And it all started with a loss to the Steelers. After Monday's loss, the atmosphere in the locker room was grim. Here are Drake Kirkpatrick and Preston Brown. You know, we got to just figure this out. We got to get wins. They don't pay me to, to lose. You know what I'm saying? And that shit is unacceptable to me. I don't know how everybody else feels about it, but just frustrating, bro. It's frustrating, man. Like I said, I'm trying to be cool about everything, but this, I'm hot as hell. I'm mad. We, we, I went for and that shit sucked. Is this, is this the you hottest friend. you felt? I went for, man, and then ain't nothing else to be said, bro. Can you describe the emotion right now? Uh, it's tough uh, to go into a game like this Monday night. You know, everybody's watching you. You're trying to get a big win to show that you're not that team as you showed the first three weeks, but we showed that we are that team. So we got to keep fighting and show everybody that we can get better. If not, we're going to keep losing a lot of games. So we got to change it right now. The Bengals are one of six teams without a win. The Dolphins, Broncos, and Raiders are also 0-4. The Jets are 0-3. And this week's opponent, the Arizona Cardinals, are 0-3-1. Time to take a look at where things stand with my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. Lap, frustration is mounting. It was palpable in the locker room after the Steelers game. Do you see a team that is starting to get a little bit fragile? You know, it's in my mind, having been through a season like, well, hopefully it's not going to be as bad as the one I went through, a 4-12 and season where we started off 0-8. The one thing that used to piss me off royally was teammates that would come out of the shower and uh, before their last drop of water on them was dry, they had forgotten about the game already. They were worried about where were they going to party, what were they going to do. I mean, they didn't give a damn about the football game. And that used to drive me crazy. I don't see that with this group. You know, and the fact that they're frustrated, I think, is a, you know, a, a decent sign. Um, but, yeah, I think the longer they go without winning a football game, you do become more and more fragile. And it's like you're thinking, okay, oh, Force fumble. Is this the, is this the game? Is this the, and then don't take advantage of it. Jeez, oh, maybe this isn't the game. You know, you feel like you have no margin for error. You have to capitalize on everything, and when you don't, you have to fight that mental tug of war of like, there's going to be other opportunities in this football game. That's not the only opportunity. You know, like it didn't work out. Move on. You know, see how how else you can play. You know, uh, complimentary football. You you weren't very complimentary of that takeaway by the defense that put you at the 15 yard line. You know, you got to do a better job than that, but um, it is. It's, it's, it's very it's, – uh, it, it, that's where sports psychologists make a lot of money because <laughs> you, uh, you do. You come home, and, and I, I just remember, you know, sleepless nights. I've said it many times, looking at the ceiling, and the ceiling becomes, you know, a, a movie screen, and you're just seeing all these things that you remember about the football game. And, you know, when you're, uh, when you're married with, with children – um, it's it's a it's a good distraction. You come home, they're smiling no matter what. You know they still like you, <laughs> although you feel like nobody does. Uh, you don't want to see neighbors. You don't want to see friends. You don't want to see anybody. You're embarrassed. And then also your kids uh, go to school and, and uh, they're the butt of jokes. And so it it has a big effect on on uh, the dynamic of families. And that's what people you know people. Uh, don't understand, you know, when, when they have problems at work and it affects their family, nobody else knows about it. But this, the reason the guys make big money, it's such a public deal. Everything that they do is uh, is seen by everybody. So there's no hiding. 
and uh, and it does have a ripple effect on families at times for sure. So if you are listening to this podcast and your kids go to school <laughs> with the kids of Bengals players or coaches, tell your kids to be nice. Be kind. Exactly. <laughs> Lap, there are six winless teams in the NFL right now. Five have new head coaches. Looking back historically, Sam Weich, 0-5 mm-hmm. to begin his tenure as the Bengals head coach. Bill Walsh turned out to be pretty good. He started his uh, tenure in San Francisco 0-7. It's a complicated game. I know people don't want to hear this, but does it take time to implement new systems? It, it does, you know, and, uh, and sometimes the system you want to implement, you don't quite have the personnel to implement it the way you want to implement it, so then you have to massage your system to fit the personnel. You know, you, you don't want to say, this is what I'm going to do no matter what, if you don't have the players to do it. You know, we said this more times than one, the, the great Don Shula, uh, Bum Phillips was talking about him, and you know, he said he can take his and, his and beat your and he can take your and beat his and He could adapt and adjust to whatever he's got. If he's got, you know, uh, Larry Zonk and Jim Kick, he's going to run one style of offense. He has Dan Marino and uh, Nate Moore. He's going to run, a, you know, another style of offense. So, you know, uh, you, you have to adjust, and, and the coaches have to find out what the players can and can't do. And the players have to really understand the expectations of the coaching staff, um, what what they want out of them, and it does it does take some time. Uh, I think, you know, if if you won the Seattle game, I wonder if you know they'd be one and three, or if they'd be two and two, three and one. You just never know. But the fact that they didn't get that one under their under their belt, and then had that performance, you know, they played pretty well, and then really struggle. Play pretty well in Buffalo, you know, recover, really struggle in Pittsburgh. You know, how will they respond this one in Arizona? You don't like to have that pattern, though, of up and down, up and down. All you hear uh, players and, and coaches talk about in any sport is consistency. And right now they're the model of inconsistency with these up and down performances individually and collectively. They've been very consistent with their inability to stop sideline to sideline misdirection type plays. Since the uh, San Francisco game, teams are pulling out anything they have in their playbook that, that kind of fits that description. Are there fundamental flaws in the Bengals' defensive personnel that makes it hard for them to stop those kinds of plays? You know, I think everybody talks about trying to get people in space. And those kind of plays, a lot of times, will get people in space. And it was the darndest thing watching the Steeler game. They never stretched the defense vertically, except for a couple of times, but they stretched them to death horizontally. They made them defend, you know, 53 and a half yards, whatever the width of the football field is. They had to defend every bit of it. And that's what, uh, that's what teams are doing. They're, not, they're stretching them more horizontally than they are vertically, even in the passing game. You know, it's short uh, throws to the, to the perimeter, you know, horizontal stuff, play-action screens and, um, I mean – Pittsburgh Steelers, I don't know what their average uh, ball thrown past the line of scrimmage because more than half of them, I think, were either at or behind the line of scrimmage. I, th- I think their average attempt on however many throws they had in that football game might have been five yards down the football field. The ball wasn't down the field very much, but, man, they had stretched that defense out with, the, with motion, like you say, Dan, you know, jet sweeps. And, and then, you know, the shovel passes they were throwing, that's, that's an extension of the running game. Instead of, you know, handing the football off, you know, you're just letting it leave your hand for a yard to somebody else's possession. So, um, you know, you look at it in Pittsburgh. Oh, they didn't really run the ball uh, all that great. Well, you throw those shovel passes in there, they ran the ball pretty darn well. And it was amazing to me 
that Fickner decided, even with as good an offensive line as I have, and Connor and Samuels, we have to do it differently. I mean, he abandoned all their power running game stuff that they had done over the years and did all this trickeration stuff. So that that's going to be interesting. And, you know, at some point, they're going to have to throw the football down the football field. They didn't have to do it uh, Monday night, but at some point, they're going to have to, uh, you know, take the training wheels off Mason Rudolph and let him uh, ride a two-wheeler for a little <laughs> while. Does any Bengals position group get a decent grade at this point? Whew. I mean, you know, the, the, game number one, you say, man, the defensive line, wow. But, you know, they've got, I think, one sack in the last eight quarters. You know, that that, uh, that part of it. And it's not just sacks. It's tackle for loss. It's the consistent pressure that they put on Seattle, put on Seattle's running game, put on Seattle's passing game. You know, that hasn't, uh, that hasn't really materialized since. Now, there have been injuries. They have three guys down. Um, you know, the last last couple of games, they've only got seven defensive linemen in the rotation, so they have been limping a little bit there. But, you know, the linebacker group is the one that people are attacking with these misdirections and the, making them run, you know, uh, and getting them in space and, and trying to make them miss in space and those kind of things. So, you know, the linebacker group, I don't know if you it, – it's I, defensively – you know, I, I can't give any group. I, wide receivers would probably be the closest group, in my mind, offensively. The offensive line, you just can't give them any kind of a passing grade after the Pittsburgh fiasco. Um, so, yeah, it's, that, that's, that's part of the problem is the reason they haven't won a football game, they don't have any position group that every single game has competed at, you know, the highest level that you have to compete at. Three touchdowns and 11 red zone trips for the season. That's unbelievable. What's the biggest problem in the red zone? You know, not not running the football. I think when when the field compresses, um, it, it's harder to find holes. You know, in, in coverage a lot of times, and you do have to have some sort of a, a presence in the running game to tighten the linebackers even more so to the line of scrimmage to create some kind of cavity. You know, and and right now. Um, the linebackers aren't feeling like they have to creep up and crawl up there. So, you know, they're just – and then they're, they're, they're making mistakes. You know, they're, they're having protection problems. Um, you know, they're just, just not executing. Again, it's – they're just sputtering, stammering. Um, they have not had one red zone possession that, you know, say from the 17-yard line – they ran three really good crisp plays. We're like, wow, that was that was impressive. The three plays they ran inside the twenty there that led to that touchdown. You know, one set up another, and they finished it off with this. It's just been so piecemeal and so like, you know. And and I know they spend a lot of time on situational football. I mean, they spend a lot of time on red zone preparation. And last year, the one thing they did do well is they they were third in the NFL, seventy one percent conversion percentage and touchdown in the red zone. Not so much uh, to start off this season for sure, and 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 not only, you know, not not scoring touchdowns, two of the three red zone possessions against Pittsburgh, nothing. Squadouche, you know, you fumble the ball on a sack, they recover and you throw an interception on fourth down from the twelve yard line, I think it was, or sixteen yard line, whatever it was. I mean, just trying to make a play. That those are those are desperation scenarios. There, that's 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 tough. 
Lap, the Arizona Cardinals are coming to town on Sunday. They were 3-13 and last year, earning the number one pick in the NFL draft, and they used it on Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Kyler Murray out of Oklahoma. He is 5'10". That would have been unheard of a few years ago. What are the Bengals going to see from Kyler Murray in the Cardinals offense on Sunday? Well, I think 5'10 might be when he's on his tippy toes. I mean, he's a, he's a generous 5'10". And hopefully uh, what Kyler Murray is going to see from the Bengals is a lot of people in his face. You know, I mean, that's what they have to do. His shotgun is a little bit deeper than most. He wants to get that separation, uh, kind of like Russell Wilson, that they have that longer shotgun deal on, in Seattle. And um, I, I think he's right now aspires to be what Russell Wilson is. I think Kyler Murray is even a little bit quicker than, than Russell Wilson. I'm not saying is, is clever at this stage of his career, but he has a very accurate throwing arm like Russell Wilson as well. So I think that the Bengals got a good dress rehearsal quote as such by how they contained uh, Russell Wilson. But this is going to be a different-looking offense than Seattle put out there. Cliff Kingsbury is going to run his air raid stuff that he did at Texas Tech, and it's going to have a lot more uh, sizzle to it. It's not going to be lining up and say, I'm going to outmuscle you and, you know, I'm better than you. He's going to have some uh, dipsy do to it because trickerations and misdirections killing the Bengals right now. Lap, the Bengals allowed eight sacks on Monday night in Pittsburgh, and now the Cardinals are coming to town on Sunday, featuring the duo of Chandler Jones and Terrell Suggs. Jones has had 10-plus sacks each of the last four years. Terrell Suggs is about to turn 37, but he still gets after the quarterback. He leads the Cardinals with three and a half so far this year. How do the Bengals neutralize the pass rush this week? Yeah, Suggs has three and a half. Jones has three. Pretty good out of that duo. And then don't sleep on a guy named Zach Allen, this kid from uh, Boston College, third-round guy. He brings it. He brings the pass rush as well. So, uh, yeah, the Bengals are going to have to <laughs> do a much better job, obviously, in their one-on-one matchups than they did in Pittsburgh. I think the biggest way to neutralize a pass rush is to play with a lead. You know, I mean, you, you get down – you know, two, three scores in the National Football League, and these guys are just pinning their ears back and no regard for the run whatsoever, I can tell you that is brutal to try to get done. You know, pass rush drill in practice when you're going one-on-one and they have all this space to operate in, that's what it feels like, you know, in a game. It feels like one-on-one pass rush. They have all the advantage. You really don't have any, you know, maybe a draw or a screen to maybe keep them off balance a little bit, but that is it's like trying to block a great player with one hand tied behind your back when you're in that situation. So you're going to have to you know, make sure that it is a competitive game or you're playing with a lead because you don't want to be you know, a score or two behind trying to pass block these guys. It's, it's, it's danger written all over that. Last thing, I feel like we need to practice this because it's been a while. When the Bengals make the play that essentially clinches the win, <laughs> I'm going to say coffin nails, and you are going to say bam. Bam! Bam! Let's hope that Lap is belting that out around 4 o'clock on Sunday. Now time for this week's Fun Facts interview where we get to know the person under the pads. This week, it's a tight end who got a three-year contract extension in the offseason, earning him a lot of money and a second appearance on this segment. Time for an updated edition of Fun Facts with Bengals tight end C.J. Uzama. We did one of these your rookie year. And I asked you what CJ stands for because it's not in your bio. It's not on your Wikipedia page. You told me Christopher James, but then also that your birth name is Christopher Michael Charles Timpson Jr. Before you were adopted by the Uzamas. When did they come into your life? So it was my, it was my stepdad, and he came into my life um, when I was seven. 
Um, and I mean, he's been my dad my entire life. I called him dad. So it was only right that, um, you know, I incorporated um, the last name into, into, you know, my name and changed my name up and kind of show him the respect that, um, you know, I, I think that he deserves. It seems like you are extremely close to your folks. You're an only child. Mm-hmm. I'm the father of an only child. So I, I kind of identify with what that's like. Yeah, it's uh, for them, they probably want to be closer now. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I am close with them. I mean, I am their only kid, so they, uh, I'm sure like you, try to keep their my, my best interest at heart and um, are always just saying small things, sending me a text every day. So um, I am very close with them for sure. You were a high school quarterback. Mm-hmm. Why did you switch to tight end? I think mainly colleges were going back and forth saying that I might play quarterback, but they might switch me. And Auburn came in and said, hey, look, we just going to be straight up with you. You're not going to play quarterback here. And I just appreciated them being straightforward, and I knew that I wasn't the best quarterback per se, um, but I could be able to do other things. So, um, yeah, I would kind of switch positions and the rest is history, I guess, from then. Did any big-time schools recruit you as a quarterback? Northwestern, I know for sure, said quarterback, and that would be it. Um, and it was cold. <laughs> uh, and so, no, I, I, uh, I, I really appreciated that, and, and so I talked to them a little bit. Um, and But I, I just kind of wanted to stay down south. The year before you got to Auburn, they won the national championship with Cam Newton at quarterback. You were being recruited that year, I assume. Did you attend games that year, and did you have any interaction with Cam? So, actually, I had committed before that, so I went to every home game. I missed – I left early one game, and it was when they were playing LSU. Uh, Other than that, I was at every home game. I got to witness all those amazing (laughs) games, all those high-scoring games. I got to watch Cam and his Heisman. It was awesome, yeah, so I, I did get to meet him. Um, and kind of have a little relationship with him. Um, and it was awesome. I mean, he, coming in, I was like, dude, there's no way this guy plays quarterback. He is a dinosaur. That's what one of the coaches used to call him, dinosaur. They don't make him like him anymore. <laughs> so um, no, it was honestly, for a high school kid to be able to watch that, coming into a college, I'm like, man, this is this is amazing. This is <laughs> this is easy. We could do this every, every year. So uh, it, was, it was truly a unique experience. We're doing an updated round of fun facts with C.J. Uzama. Your sophomore year at Auburn, you didn't win a game in the SEC, and the coaching staff got whacked. Mm-hmm. The next year, you make it to the national championship game. How was that possible? I think just, you know, having a fresh mindset coming in. Um, you know, you, you we have a whole new coaching staff, whole new strength and conditioning staff, whole new, you know, we just kind of put everything beside us, uh, behind us, and kind of came together as a team. It was a tightest-knit team um, that I had that I had. Um, my four years at Auburn, and the leaders really stepped up and kind of just propelled us and, and put us in a position to um, win games late in the game, but then you know also early on and doing our bubble drills and doing our two-a-days and things like that. So um, it was really like the competitive edge of, all right, we're not. We, we know what we went through last year, and that's not going to ever happen ever again. Like, we can't let that happen. So, um, again, that was, I mean, I think one of the biggest turnarounds in college football history of uh, – I can't imagine there being a bigger one, but um, it was it was sick. It was awesome. <laughs> and that year, you played in one of the most memorable games in college football history, the Iron Bowl game against Alabama with the 109-yard return of a missed field goal to win the game, the, the famous kick six. What are your most vivid memories of that day? Of that day? So it's crazy, actually. So I'm running on the field, 
I think I'm the only one who's running towards the pile, also looking back. I'm looking back to make sure there's no penalties. Everyone else is just sprinting to this pile, and I'm like, wait. (laughs) There better not not be a block in the back, a holding. I'm looking back. I'm like, yes. (laughs) Get onto the pile, and and I had hurt my shoulder that game, so I kind of get off immediately like, this is stupid. Get up. I start running back, and I get to the, you know, maybe the 35, and I see one of my high school teammates who played for Alabama. And so I gave him a nice little hug, which was cool to, to be able to see him through all the madness. I look up, and there's a wave of students. And the only thing I'm thinking is there is no way I'm getting back to the locker room. I'm going to be out here for the longest time. And people got stuck out there. Chris Davis ended up getting stuck out there for like an hour and a half. Like, the guy who made the return. The guy who made yeah. the return. Could not get back. Um, and through all the madness, I saw my roommate, Tate O'Connor, who is, I'm, you know, I'm his um, son's godfather, which was awesome. And all this madness, and my other roommate Trey Mason, the running back at the time, comes up, hugs me. So we all three got a picture, which is probably the most memorable, memorable thing of that night. Just because through all these eighty thousand people on the field, we found each other and got to get a picture. So it was it was awesome. To me, one of the things that makes sports great is irrational sports hatred. How you feel about your rival? Mm-hmm. Do you have irrational sports hatred for Alabama? I have more so that towards Georgia, hmm. being from Georgia. I, I, I don't like Alabama, you know. Like I, but at the same time, I know so many of their players growing up, and and, and um, you know, even in high school, we played against Alabama teams. Being from Georgia, we we played against Georgia, Alabama all the time. You know, my high school did, so I knew a lot of their players. But Georgia. I just, I, growing up in Georgia, all I heard, I, I went to North Gwinnett, we were the Bulldogs. I saw red, black, and white, and just Bulldog all day, every day, and I, I, Irrational there is, there is, it, it cannot, I cannot describe it. So, um, when we won uh, the week before against Georgia, to me, even though obviously the kick six most unbelievable play, I, I think personally in college history, um, the week before, to me, meant more because I was like, I get to go home for the next year, and I will not hear any Georgia fans say one word to me, and I'm going to love it. So, um, yeah, Georgia to me is more irrational hate. Good to know. You moved to Nashville in the off season, so you're about halfway between where you grew up and, and where you work now in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Obviously the home of the country music scene and a lot of music in general. Do you get into that kind of stuff when you're living in Nashville in the off season? Um... I, I do a little bit. Uh, I, I like all music. Um, I've I say I don't like country music, but I listen to country music more than <laughs> probably a lot of other people. Um, I, I do enjoy it. Uh, I like going out. I don't really go to Broadway. Broadway's a very it's very hectic and crazy. But I like going to like more low key out of you know just random spots where local music is being played and I know a few people that are in the music industry so we go to a lot of concerts and um, again it's more low-key it's not too crazy not too hectic um, I love it I love music I, I music to me is aside from football family and God is my life I, I, I think that it just changes my mood or helps my mood or whatever it is there's something that music can can bring into my life so I, I couldn't be happier that I moved to Nashville and have that influence Last thing, you're a soccer fanatic. Chelsea is your team. They won the Premier League title in 2017. My team, Leicester City, won in 2016. 
What is your Chelsea routine? Do you get together with supporters to watch matches when you can? Do you put on the jersey? What is your routine? Well, I, I will say I watch almost every Chelsea match. Um, it's kind of tough. Uh, there was a website that I used that no longer is working. So, um, But I have two friends. Uh, one's name is DeAndre Atwater. Um, he went to a rival high school of mine and we're really close friends. And another kid went to Auburn with me. And we'll Snapchat each other. Wills. Wills and I will Snapchat each other right when the game begins. DeAndre and I will talk to each other after the match. Um, and obviously I follow Chelsea FC in the USA. So there's a Twitter that I follow that I kind of contact every now and then as well. And um, no, I, I, uh, It depends. I, I can't. I can't wear clothes, something like a jersey. I should say sometimes because I start sweating. I don't want I don't want to sweat in my jersey. You know, it's a nice kit. I want to make sure it stays stays as such. So um, I put on something else probably. But um, I'll sit down and there's no phones down unless they score, and then I'll tweet something maybe. But phones down and I am in it for 45 minutes or 47 minutes at a time, and nobody. My girlfriend, my parents, it does not matter what's going on. I am blocked in to the match the entire time. Have you made it there yet? I have not. I have not made it there yet. I'm going, I'm planning to after the season. Appreciate your time as always. Best of luck. Always enjoy it. Thank you very much. We want to remind you that you can join us and meet Bengals players at our on-location radio shows this week. On Wednesday night from 6 to 8, we'll be at Logo Sports Bar at 8954 Blue Ash Road for the Bengals Game Plan Show. An all-time Bengals great will join us in the first hour as David Fulcher will be our on-location guest. Then on Friday afternoon from 3 to 6, Lap and Wayne Box Miller will be at Buffalo Wings and Rings in Crestview Hills, Kentucky for the Bengals Pep Rally Show with a current player joining in the final hour. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. And if you have a minute, please give it a rating or share a comment. Those five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.